please turn with me your Bibles to Romans chapter 1, Romans 1, as we continue on. I'm going to be saying that a lot as we continue on and on and on through uh, this wonderful letter, this wonderful epistle. Um, you know, sometimes to uh, appreciate what you have, you have to realize what you've gone through to get that. You know, like you hear a lot of times people, families, that first generation that comes and works so hard and goes through the sacrifices and the dark times and the difficulties and the poverty and working up and doing all that they can to sustain and maintain a living for their family. Like really tough times. Those kids of those parents really appreciate that, don't they? They know what their parents did for them so they could have what they possess at that particular time. But as generations go on, you kind of forget about that. And then you end up taking things for granted. You're not too worried about the hard work or the difficult times. You just kind of expect things, become more flippant, right? That's, that happens in, in families and so forth. It's kind of the same way for us spiritually, you know. Unless we realize how desperate our situation is, how deep our sin is, the trouble that we're in, the wrath that we're under before God, we're not going to appreciate the salvation that Christ has purchased for us. And we're not going to live with that gratitude and that joy and that zeal to express what we have in Christ unless we know what we've been rescued from, man. Unless we know how deep our sin is, how extensive our problem is. And the church is trying to get around that today. You know, saying, oh, you're, you're pretty good. You're not totally bad. You're all right. But Jesus is wonderful. Our situation... We're coming to this in Romans. It's going to show us. Paul talks about the gospel, but then he spends a lot of time teaching us why we need the gospel. And that's what we're entering into today. Kind of like a ship that's, uh, you know, there's the dark clouds and you're heading that way before you get beyond that into the light. We're heading to that difficult place right now, but it's a necessary place because it shows us our need how desperate we are, how sinful we are, and how wonderful Christ is. Amen? So let's enter into that, Romans chapter 1. Uh, we're going to read this morning just a couple of verses, 18 through 20. I told you last week we would be digging in. We're going to be drilling in this morning. Paul says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what could be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they are without excuse. Praise God. We're not going to preach all of that, which is kind of verse 18 and 19 this morning, but I want to put that in for context. Let me break down the section for you just a little bit as we embark upon it. Remember back in chapter uh, verses 16 and 17 that Paul introduces us to the heart of the gospel, the good news. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So he introduces the heart of the gospel but he doesn't return to the heart of the gospel until chapter 3. So if you just want to turn the page, uh, a couple pages, chapter 3 and verse 21, he kind of gets back to the glories of the gospel and he says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. And he goes on to talk about the righteousness of God through faith. 
what he does in between from verse 18 of chapter 1 to verse 20 in chapter 3, he explains, and here's that place where we're going to, the, the dark clouds, if, if you want to put it that way, explains and underscores our absolute desperate need of the gospel. He explains our predicament, why the good news is so good, right? What makes it so good? That need for justification by faith alone, which he gets into in chapter 3 and chapter 4. He teaches that we're under the wrath of God. Make no mistake about that. So this is a very comprehensive, it is, it's a massive section that shuts all of us up under sin. We have no recourse. We can't make any excuses. There's nowhere to go. It's kind of like when somebody robs a bank. Have you seen those movies? They put everybody in the vault and they close that big vault door and you're sealed in there. Everybody is sealed in that place. Well, that's how we are. We are sealed and shut up under sin. There's no question. Yeah, it's just very extensive. So we're, we're, we're coming into this. Um, in this section, in 18 through the end of this first chapter, Paul's speaking primarily, not exclusively, but primarily to the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, the people who won't be as familiar with God, the people that wouldn't consider themselves followers of God, or at least the God of the Bible, right? These are the people, just like today, who don't, like, we're just surrounded by the Gentiles, aren't we, man? Oh, for sure. People, they don't read their Bibles. What's a Bible? Yeah, that's a book for the shelf, right? I don't think too much about God, just maybe occasionally. I'm not going to get down on my knees and pray or serve or worship God. We live in that way. Paul, in this section particularly, is, is speaking to those people. In chapter 2, he speaks especially to the Jewish people. They would be the religious people, the people that know God, know about God, comparable to many in the church today or those who call themselves Christians. We'll talk about more about that coming up. And then in chapter 3, he just covers all of us, just kind of universal um, covering of sin. Everybody's included. There's nobody, not one who does right in the sight of God. So this is a, a heavy section that t- teaches us about our need. Again, it makes the good news so good. Major teachings, just so you know, um, doctrines that you need to be aware of as we're going through this section in chapter 1, uh, the wrath of God. We're going to be talking about the wrath of God this morning, so buckle up and get ready for that. Number two is the general or natural revelation of God. We'll spend next week on that for sure. The sinful nature of man, our willful rebellion against God, and that runs through all these, this, this whole section and our idolatry. So those are major teachings and doctrines that you need to be thinking about as Christians in your mind. You know, what is it about us? What is it about God? What about God's wrath? What, what, how come, how come there, people don't have an excuse for not knowing God? All those kinds of things Paul is speaking to. But I do want to talk this morning about the wrath of God because Paul does. He brings it up right away. He comes off the beautiful message of the gospel, then all of a sudden he says, for the wrath of God. The, the gospel is the good news of salvation for the wrath because the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in that unrighteousness. So let's talk about the wrath of God. I just want to start with some common misconceptions about the wrath of God. These are things that I've heard over the year about the anger of God or the wrath of God or the justice of God. You've probably heard some of these things too. Um, mischaracterizations characterizations about God. Number one, God is mean. He's just as mean, mean up there and, and he's, he's capricious. And that just means his sudden, uncontrolled, 
change of mood and change, you know, just kind of doing whatever comes to in, in that way. Uh, he's a harsh God. He's a frustrated God. He's a sadistic God. These are things that I've heard. He's just up there. He's a cosmic bully up there with his wrath and pouring this out. What kind of God allows certain things to happen? What kind of God commands the destruction of entire people, entire nations? That, that's, a, that's a good, righteous God. Isn't that just a, a mean, sadistic, capricious God? What kind of God brings down fire and brimstone or, or flood that wipe out the world, right? Those are some people bring those objections up. You'll hear that from people, right? You probably have. How about, ah, the Old Testament God, he's, he's the wrathful vengeance God. I, give me Jesus. Give me the New Testament God. Meek and mild Jesus. I love him. What? That's terrible theology. And you're, even in some churches, they're making that distinction. Listen, there's one God, same in substance, equal in essence, power and glory, and in purpose. That's another sermon altogether, but just so you know, just give you that up front. It's not that there's the God of the Old Testament who's this, and the God of the New Testament who's that. There's one God, same purpose. But I think we made the mistake as the church and as Christians of buying into these ideas, at least to a degree, haven't we? We kind of play down the wrath of God, the judgment of God, the anger of God. We kind of make excuses for him. Well, God said that, but he didn't quite mean that. Here's what he really meant. You'll hear people do that. And when he said, go and destroy that nation, he meant go and destroy that nation. Um, we want to take the edge off of God's wrath and his holiness and righteousness. And we place an overemphasis at least in my time as a Christian, I was converted in 1990, and mostly this is what I've heard about God, just the, the love and the grace and the mercy of God, amen, and all that's true. But there really hasn't been a balance. There really hasn't been the truth spoken about the entire nature of God. Listen, contrary to popular opinion, the anger and wrath of God is not arbitrary, it is not uncontrolled, and he is not sadistic. Listen to this. The wrath of God is an essential aspect of his nature, of his character, of his essence. God is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, as we sang, in his being, in his wisdom, in his power, in his holiness, in his justice. He's not a God who's made up of these different attributes. Well, here's a little bit of this, and that makes God... No, no, he's not made up of these attributes. He is love. He is holy. He is just. He is righteous. He is a God of love. He is a God of wrath. They find their fullness and completion in him. That's who he is. It's part of his essence and character and nature. So wrath... When we talk, when he said, when Paul says the wrath of God, it's connected with God's holiness, man. It's connected with his justice. And you need that and you love that. It's connected with his righteousness. And we all need that. So here's what wrath is. When we talk about wrath, and I, this is what I've put together. It's real short. It's just this. Wrath is God's righteous anger against sin and sinners, and the just punishment thereof. Okay? It's a righteous, his righteous anger against sin and sinners and the just punishment thereof. That's the wrath of God. It's not this crazy, uncontrolled thing where God is just pouring stuff out that way. No, no, not at all. It has to do with his justice. 
He is angry when it's right to be angry, just like you in that way, right? But his wrath is always measured, it's always proportionate, and it's always appropriate. So when you hear about Sodom and Gomorrah, when you hear about the flood, you could be sure that that was deserved and just punishment from God. It's not that God was over, you know, extending himself or, or angry in that way and gone too far. No, he never goes too far. It's always appropriate. It's always proportionate. We could relate to this just a little bit. You could relate. I'm going to read uh, an article, a portion of an article that I read the other day. And I want you to think about this. And I'm going to ask you how you react to this. Because I want you to think about anger, righteous anger. I want you to think about justice and wrath. Paul says, the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness. Hear this. Just read it the other day, yesterday. A group of seven teenagers attacked and killed a 73-year-old man in Philadelphia last month with a traffic cone, according to video footage released by the Philadelphia Police Department. Disturbing footage of the incident, which occurred on June 14, shows a group of apparent teenagers pursuing the victim, identified as James Lambert, down the street. The video shows Lambert attempting to walk away from the group. The teens then followed the 73-year-old across the street and one of the male assailants attacked him from behind by striking him with traffic cone. The blue knocked Lambert to the ground, at which point one of the group's female picked up the cone and started hitting him again and again. The incident was filmed by other members of the group who also appeared to be smiling and laughing throughout the attack. The footage showed Lambert appearing to, appearing to get up to flee the area before he was struck again, with the cone by the same female assailant. The teenagers then left the scene as one of the males pedaled away on a scooter, smiling with another male companion. Police said Lampert was taken to the hospital where he later succumbed to his injuries the next day. How are you feeling right now when you read that? What's your reaction to that? How do you react to that? What should happen to those killers? Hmm? That's right. They, they, yeah, they, they should be taken. See, that's a righteous anger that you feel. That shouldn't be. That's not right. There needs to be justice. And there needs to be the appropriate punishment that's dealt out. Let's take it a step further. What if that man was your dad? What if that man was your grandfather? What if that man was your husband? How much more to an altogether good, holy, and just God when we talk about that? Listen to this. This is so important to Paul's argument and to what he's saying in the nature of God. Without God's wrath, the wrath that we don't want to talk about, the wrath that we you know, kind of make excuse to cover over, without God's wrath, there can be no ultimate justice. There can't be. There could be no just punishment for sin. And there could be no proper consequence for wrongdoing. See, that's the wrath of God that pours out that justice deservingly on those. Now, how would you feel if these kids get caught, but all of a sudden you hear, well, they've come from a bad background. They've come from a homeless but 
They're poor kids. They're not even adults yet. They need a break. Let's give them two years probation. How are you going to feel about that? See, that's not just the wrath of God. That's just punishment and the appropriate punishment that's given. Without it, there could be no true ultimate justice, no just punishment for sin, and no proper consequence. Listen, the opposite of wrath is not compassion and love. That's what many people are going to try to sell you. It's not that. It's not that. The opposite is not compassion and love. The opposite of wrath is apathy and indifference. That's all. When there's no punishment, that's, it's, that's, and that's kind of where we find ourselves today. It's cowardice. You're too afraid to deal with the situation appropriately and rightly. You're not going to stand up to it and give it what it deserves. I'm telling you. That's where we're at today. Paul says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. It's part of what's plaguing our society today. That righteous anger, that, that, that just wrath. It's, our justice system is not serving nor protecting the community as it ought to be, especially when you come to the courts. So pro-defendant, so light sentencing, parole, get out, no real wrath, no real punishment. That doesn't deter, that's not going to stop it. In our schools, there's such lack of discipline and light on discipline. There are many public schools that you would not want to enter into. We can ask some of our teachers here, right? It's, they're scary places in many different ways because there's no discipline, there's no wrath, there's no just punishment that's being meted out. There's no fear in that way. Do you understand? So this is all a glimpse of that in the home, even in our homes today. It's all about positive reinforcement for our children, constant affirmation no matter what, reasoning with little kids that don't have the capacity to reason as adults in that way. We lack proper discipline. No wonder so many kids are brats and bullies and disrespectful and self-centered, uncontrollable. They think they could do whatever they want to do, and they actually do that, right? But I digress. Let me get back to the message. Or I can go off on a tangent on that for a long time like I did with joy this morning. God's wrath serves to warn, to rebuke, and to rightly punish sinners. J.I. Packer says this, God's wrath is his holy response to objective moral evil. Scripture's not embarrassed of God's wrath. It's not. It speaks to God's wrath more than it speaks of his mercy. Why are we so embarrassed? Why are we so afraid to talk about judgment and wrath to come unless you turn and repent in Christ? The Bible doesn't... I'll turn to a few passages. You may turn with me if you like. Psalm 7. We could be here all day speaking to the Psalm 7, verse 6, then 9 through 16. And you could see where the psalmist is speaking to in terms of God's judgment and wrath. He says, arise, O Lord, in your anger, your anger against sin, the fury of my enemies. I'm sorry, lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake from me. You have appointed a judgment. And then in verse 9, he says, oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end. And may you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and the hearts, O righteous God, My shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. 
He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil, is pregnant with mischief, and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out. He falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head and on his own skull. Jeremiah 10, verses 10 and 11 say this, But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. In his wrath, at his wrath, the earth quakes, and the nations cannot endure his indignation. Thus shall you say to them, the gods who did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens. His wrath is poured out. And don't think it's just the Old Testament. Jesus himself in the New Testament, when he's speaking to the cities, that were, the unrepentant cities in Matthew 11 says this, he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. He said, woe to you, Chorazan, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable, bearable in the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? Will you be brought down? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable on that day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. God's wrath is poured out. God's judgment is real. Finally, in Revelation 19, verses 11 through 16, this is speaking of Jesus himself. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a, say, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on the white horse. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which he strikes down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. It's the wrath of God. Paul says the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness. So we're not left alone. Paul goes on to teach us that we're not guessing to why his wrath comes. Why would God do such a thing? How could God do such a thing? Okay, you want to ask that question? He answers that. He goes on to answer it more extensively. But for this morning, we're just going to look at two categories of, of sin as to why God's wrath comes upon us and why we're deserving of it and why we need Jesus. That's always the good news. That's always the light at the end of the tunnel. That's always the sun at the end of the storm. Praise God. We're not left here. But we are here. We're not left in what? Two, the short answer as to why God's wrath is being revealed is due to our willful rebellion the willful rebellion of man against God, the creature against his creator. Paul gives two major categories of sin that deserve wrath and his anger. He says this, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. They're not just synonyms. They're actually two different words, have two different meanings. They're very important in understanding why God's wrath is coming upon us and why we need the gospel. Okay? Number one, ungodliness. The ungodliness of man. 
That has to do with the disposition of people. Especially, he's talking mainly to Gentile people. No need for God. I'm not going to even acknowledge God. Who's God? Unless I kind of need him type of thing, then maybe I'll, I'll look to him. But ungodliness, you know what that means? Now, just think. Here's holy God who created everything, who made you, who made you who made everything, who made everything for you so that you could survive, so that you could live. The the very air that you breathe. He provides for you everything by his common grace. You're image bearers of God. This ungodliness has to do with disposition. And it it means impiety. Like you're you're not pious. You're not, you, you lack reverence for God. You lack fear of God. How many people in your life that you know day to day have real reverence for God, who truly fear God, who truly look to God. Not many, right? We just kind of go about our day, do what we do. We do our thing. We don't honor Him. We don't give thanks. We don't give the respect. We don't worship Him as we ought to, and that's what He deserves. See? You're not giving Him that due respect. It's, it's just the opposite of that. That's why the wrath of God is re- revealed. It's a lack of acknowledgement. He made us. How many people acknowledge him? How many people give thanks to to the Lord? 99% of the people that we know don't even consider God day to day. They don't even think about God during the day as they go about their activities, do they? They don't think to thank him. Oh, there might be the obligatory, oh, thank God that that happened, right? Or if you're in the foxhole in a really difficult place, you might cry out to God. But normally, most of the people, they don't even think to give God thanks. That's the righteousness of God. He is owed that by his creation and creatures. Why would God be mad about that? You can think of it even as a parent. When your kid disrespects you, can't stand you, won't listen to you, doesn't acknowledge your existence, defies you at every turn, doesn't even consider what you say, that's going to make you happy? That's going to make you glad? Uh, Yeah, okay. I don't think so. That's why he says there's indignation in Psalm 7 every day against sinners. And you're going to see because we do know him. We'll talk more about this next week. But don't acknowledge him. Don't give thanks to him. We refuse to acknowledge his rightful claim over our lives. We just do. I'm independent of God. He ain't going to tell me what to do. I'm going to do what I want to do. Right? Who's God? And then why should he be angry with me, we say? What have I ever done to God? Now, it doesn't mean that, that you're irreligious. People are religious. Absolutely religious. It, it means that you've replaced him. It means that there's a misplaced religious affection. Because you do acknowledge something or someone, right? You do put your trust in something or someone all the time, whatever that might be. You do serve something or someone other than God. You do give thanks to someone or something other than God. You trust in God. All those things that we do when we put our faith and trust and acknowledge these other things in our lives, it might be another person, it might be our job, it might be ourselves, it might be drugs. Whatever that is that you're acknowledging, that you're looking to, shows your ungodliness because you're not acknowledging the true and living God, right? You're giving your affection to something else, someone else that he deserves. We'll talk much more about this next week. Exodus 23 says this. Look, check it out. It says, real simple. <laughs> we didn't even need to put it up there. You shall have no other gods before me. It's commandment. And he says that. Now, were the Ten Commandments just for God's people? Is he saying that? 
Absolutely, it's for God's people, as the Lord's given the commandment. But it doesn't exclude other people. God's not saying, okay, people, I'm your God. You shall have no other gods before me. But if you don't serve me, those Gentiles over there, they can have their other gods. They don't need to have me. It's not saying that at all. The whole point of Exodus was showing that there is no other God, that he alone is the living and true God, and every single person owes him, their obedience, their thanks, their worship. Do you understand? That's a big deal. We don't do that. This is what God says. First Thessalonians 1, 8 and 9 says this. Paul's talking to Christians. Now he's talking to Christians. He says, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God because you're serving something else right now if you're not in Christ. What are you serving? And don't you think that the Lord is going to be just okay with that? He's fine with that. That's ungodliness. So his righteous wrath is revealed against that. You can't just ignore him. You have to deal with him. Capish? It's a big deal. His wrath is revealed against all ungodliness. But there's another category, and that's unrighteousness. He says, the unrighteousness of men, who by that unrighteousness suppress the truth. Unrighteousness speaks more to action. Ungodliness is our disposition. I'm not even going to think about God. This is just who I am. God, you're whatever over there. Unrighteousness speaks more to uh, active and ongoing, morally wrong acts. So we could talk just in, in, uh, briefly about sins of commission. In other words, that's willfully breaking, doing the things that you ought not to do. See, that's God's wrath is revealed against ungodliness. So oh, it's just a little white lie. You're sinning against God. Oh, I'm doing this over here. I'm, I'm not doing what God commands me to do. I'm not doing what I ought to do. So people say, yeah, I know it's wrong to have an affair with another person, but you do it anyway, right? So you're just going to transgress. You're just going to commit that. That's a commission. I know I should be faithful to my spouse, but I'm desiring to have this affair over here. And not only that, my experience dealing with those who, people who've been in those situations with adultery and affairs, it's not that they're just kind of, oh, they're, they love it. They love it. They love that power that I have what belongs to you and she wants me more than she wants you. And there's some almost joy in that. Nine out of ten times. We love our sin. We love transgressing. That's, that's unrighteousness. Right? And you could do that for any, any sin that's out there. That's commission. And then there's omission. It's not doing what you ought to do. See, God's wrath is pouring against that. Don't think you can get off the hook by saying, well, at least I didn't. In that story, I didn't read the one part where one of the girls was going like this and she was upset while the man was being beaten to death. But that, that doesn't get her off the hook. Or the others who weren't actually beating him, it doesn't get them off the hook. That's sins of omission. It's not doing what you ought to do. You do nothing to stop something when you should. So if you're around people just gossiping and you let that gossip go, well, I didn't say anything, but you let it go. You didn't say no, and you need to stop. That's gossip. It's sinful, right? That's omission. 
You don't say something when you should say something. You don't speak up when you ought to. See, the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And here's the kicker. That unrighteousness, in our unrighteousness, that's a willful ignorance. Again, much more next week on this, but it's a willful ignorance as we suppress the truth about God. That means you're culpable. It doesn't get you off the hook. You can't say, I did not know. You're not going to stand before God and say, well, I never knew. You know. You know him. He makes that plain. Again, next week we'll talk about that. But you suppress that truth in unrighteousness. You hold it down. Again, that word for suppress is, is an active word. It's very, um, it means to hold down actively. Again, the favorite illustration is the beach ball. You know what that's like if you're in a swimming pool and you have that ball. You know you have to be holding it down. When it's under the water, you still know it's there. and You can kind of see it. And occasionally it pops up, right? And you get a full glimpse of it. So what do you do right away? You try to put it down again. That's what the illustration is here. We're suppressing the truth of God in that unrighteousness. We suppress the truth about God himself, about his nature, because he clearly shows us. Again, next week we'll see. His demands, his commands on our lives so that we could justify our sin. Now, now, is God going to be happy with that? Is God okay with that? Is God going to be good with that? Oh, you didn't know. Oh, that's okay. No. This is where the wrath comes in. We deserve that punishment against God. We're rejecting him, our creator, the one who made us. We do everything that we can to try to silence his voice and delude ourselves into thinking that he really doesn't exist. Right? Or if he does exist, that he doesn't have a say or claim on my life. Okay, he might be out there, but he has really nothing to do with me because I don't want anything to do with him. You can't. You have to deal with him. Or delude ourselves into thinking that we will not give an account, that we will not stand before God and answer to him. I call this every non-believer's uneasy battle. It's an uneasy battle. If you're a non-believer, before you were a Christian, you battled this, didn't you? You had your moments in time. A lot of times we just didn't even think about it, but when those moments came and we thought about what we're doing and we thought about God, you know, we, that, that's that battle trying to say, well, no, does he even exist? Does he even know? Does he even care? Am I going to answer to him? Do I really have to do this? You know, and we, we push that down and suppress that in unrighteousness. Every unbeliever's uneasy battle because they know him in their heart of hearts. We do know God, and we know that we'll answer to him. Ungodliness and unrighteousness. Yes, God is holy. Paul says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth about God. And we're going to find out why next week. Yes, he is holy. Yes, he is just. Yes, his wrath is real and it's being revealed. And we should never be ashamed of that or afraid of that. We're at a time, I was talking to somebody on the phone yesterday, where we have to, you know those things that say, in case of emergency, break the glass. We're at that time right now in our context in which we live. It's even difficult to reason with people. They're so unreasonable. They're so foolish. They're just calling right, wrong, and wrong, right. They're just doing what they want to do. They're so far away from God at this point. All we, need, all we can do is preach the gospel and the judgment that awaits, that you are going to answer to God, that his wrath is being revealed, that you are under judgment. I'm telling you, we need to get bold in this way. People need to hear that. We've tried to baby them into the kingdom so, long, so much. Look what's happened. We need that balance. 
So God is a God of justice. He is a God of wrath. And he is holy. And yet, and yet, and here's that tension in which we hold it in. He is also a God of love, a God of grace, a God of mercy. He is patient. He is kind. He is long-suffering. So we praise him as Christians. We praise him for for who he is. Because without wrath, there's apathy, indifference, no true justice. Without love, if God's not love, then all we do have is a vindictive, hateful God who's up there, if there's no love. Without patience, you would be consumed right away, right now, if God didn't have patience with you, if he wasn't long-suffering with you. Without grace, there would be no salvation. So just as certain as we are taught about the wrath of God, and we're taught about the wrath of God, we are also taught, John 3.16, That God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. We're also taught 1 John 4.10. And this is love. Not that we loved God, but he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sin. We're taught in Romans 5, 6 and 8. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see that? You see the beauty? You see the wrath of God that's real, that's righteous, that's just? You see the grace of God and the mercy of God and the love of God by sending his son, Jesus Christ, to die for sinners. That's our message. That's why Paul starts with the gospel. He's going to pick up with the gospel, but in the meantime, he's going to tell us why we need the gospel, right? And that's what he's doing right here. Amen and praise God for that, that he has sent his son. Because on the cross, Jesus fully satisfied, and listen to this, Jesus on the cross fully satisfied the wrath of God against sin. When Jesus was on the cross, God poured out his wrath upon him. His justice needed to be satisfied. And Jesus bore it as our substitute. That's a big deal. He substituted himself. He went in your place, in your place, in your place to take the wrath of God against our sin as our substitute. And in Jesus Christ, there is forgiveness. In Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of all of our sins. In Jesus Christ, there's protection. Do you know that you're protected from the wrath of God? That you're covered from that? For all those who trust in him. He paid the price for sin so that you don't have to. He bore the punishment that you surely will bear without him. So listen, it's either Jesus Christ or you. Are you going to stand behind Christ who died, who took the sin, who took the punishment, who bore it, that you may be forgiven, or are you going to pay that price of God's wrath, not only now, but for all eternity? Christ or you? This is why we preach the gospel. This is why the good news is so good, because the bad news is so desperately bad in terms of our sin. But we have the gospel, the power of salvation, the power of God unto salvation. So we need the wrath of God. Don't squelch on that. People need to know that they're going to answer to a holy and righteous and just God. But he sent his son to do something about that. Next week, we'll talk about that there's no excuse, what that means, and how a wicked man exchanges the truth of God for a lie. So it just gets deeper and deeper into this, which makes the good news better and better as it comes to us.